Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the morning he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who causes them, accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly down to the place prepared so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time. Out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Thanks, Hannah. I can't tell you how glad I am that James did not win that picture of Richard. (laughs) I think by the end of the year, the smaller children may have been bowing down to it as an idol. (laughs) Like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2. (laughs) How do you capture a person's life? When all their days are done and they're lying in their grave, how do you sum up a whole life? Well, there's a, there's a famous gravestone in Waverley Cemetery in Sydney that says, Here lies Bill Jackson. He was an accountant. <laughs> Which is kind of sad, don't you think? That his greatest life achievement was learning how to use a calculator. But actually, that's how we capture people's lives, don't we? We look for their greatest achievements. I often read the obituaries uh, in the paper. It's what middle-aged people do. It's... <laughs> kind of a glimpse into the near future and the thing about obituaries this is where you cue jokes for about Dave Allen and also about Ed Monday and all those things just let's just assume I made those jokes we all laughed at their expense and we'll move on 
The thing about obituaries is they always focus on people's greatest achievements. And sometimes they're really, really impressive. Like a man named Robin Olds. Um, his obituary, I think there's a, a picture of him. Um, his obituary calls him the World War II fighter ace who became an aviation legend. So over a 30-year period, he flew 65 different kinds of planes. He was named the hottest ace of the Vietnam War. Apparently, during the Vietnam War, he shot down 24 enemy planes, six in one dogfight, which is more than anyone else in history. At university, he'd been an All-American football player. He was in the American College Football Hall of Fame. And then later in life, he married a famous Hollywood star called Ella Raines. Now, that's a life, isn't it? Pretty impressive. Mind you, other people's life achievements aren't quite so impressive. Meet Edwin Treisman. Even his name just isn't very cool, is it? Edwin Treisman. You could tell he got beaten up in school. <laughs> I mean, look at him. <laughs> Do you know what Edwin Treisman's, what Edwin's greatest achievement in life was? He invented the frozen chip. Now, look, don't get me wrong. It's more than I will ever personally achieve, and I have to say I'm thankful to him. But it's hardly aviation legend territory, is it? The caption under the photo that you can't read says, Edwin Treisman fried chips, then froze them. Yeah. See, now, now you're feeling sympathy for him, aren't you? Now that, I'm, now that I'm teasing the poor man. Kind of gets you thinking about the high point of your own life, doesn't it? What will we write in your obituary? What will be your greatest achievement that we all celebrate? Well, look, whatever you do, I think it's safe to say that your greatest achievement won't even come close to Jesus' transfiguration. This is the high point of Jesus' life. Take a look. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after this, Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses Elijah and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. Now that's a high point of a life, isn't it? Jesus promises the kingdom of God and then eight days later he is glorified on a mountain. His face and his clothes become as bright as lightning. And if you know your Old Testament, at this point you're thinking, wow, Jesus is like God because a radiant face and clothes is how God is described in Daniel and Ezekiel. And on a mountain, well, that's Mount Sinai, isn't it? When God comes down on the mountain in glory. And to highlight that, the two prophets who saw God's glory, Moses and Elijah, appear with Jesus. This is Jesus' frozen chip moment. This is the high point. This is his pinnacle. Until you realize what Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah about. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. What about? 
They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, does that strike you as strange? Here's Jesus at the very high point of his life. And they're talking about something else. And not just anything else. They're talking about Jesus' crucifixion. That he's about to happen in in Jerusalem. You see, it's the absolute high point. And they're talking about Jesus' absolute low point. I mean, you remember the first night, don't you? The cross was horrific. It was absolutely awful. Unless, could it be that the cross wasn't Jesus' low point after all? Could it be that the cross was not the moment of Jesus' shame and defeat, but actually his greatest achievement? That on the cross, Jesus ascended to a far greater glory than he ever did at the Transfiguration. See, tonight we're going to look at the cross for Christ's sake. We've already seen the cross for God's sake. Tonight we're going to see how the cross was the highest, the most glorious achievement of Jesus' life. Let's pray and we'll ask God to help us. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we have seen the low point of the cross. We've seen the wrath and the forsakenness, the blood, the tears, the shame, the mocking. Help us to see beyond those things tonight, to the glorious achievement of Jesus. Help us to see his victory and his rule. Help us to see what was so magnificent there as you glorified your son. Amen. uh, The first night, Friday night was pretty harrowing stuff, wasn't it? Jesus crucified in the blood and the tears and the abandonment. The cross was all shame. And yet last night, we saw that the cross was actually God's greatest glory because that was the moment of God's victory over Satan. And in fact, the same is true of Jesus. Even as Jesus was crushed on the cross, he reigned supreme over the four great enemies. Over the law, over death, over sin, and over Satan. And actually, all four of those things are really linked together because all four of them work against us. You actually see it in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. For I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law hadn't said, do not covet. But sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Do you see how? The law and sin and death all work together. So the law tells me right from wrong. The law tells me what coveting is. And the law tells me what greed is. And the law tells me what lust is. And in fact, until I read about the law forbidding coveting, I can't do it. 
Because until that moment, I might never actually think of it. But as soon as I read that the law forbids coveting, what happens? Well, in verse 9, sin springs to life. That rebellious part in me that just hates God and hates His laws and hates His commandments springs to life and thinks, fantastic, here is a new opportunity I never knew about to rebel against God. Here's another opportunity to reject God. Show me something to covet right now. You see, the law actually acts as a goad to my sin. I remember once this magnificent moment going up the Empire State Building. It was a fantastic... Has anyone put up your hand if you've ever been up the Empire State Building? Extraordinary place. And it was extraordinary as an experience for two reasons. One that has nothing at all to do with this talk, but it's worth telling about, (laughs) was the elevator ride. I don't know quite how tall the Empire State Building is, but it's massive. It's like two million stories high. And in the elevator ride, it takes forever to get to the top. And you know what happened as soon as the elevator doors closed? I felt this immediate need to, shall we say, break wind. (laughs) I'd had a hot dog. I'd had something suitably gross. It had been fermenting. And let's just, I tried to hold it in. Honest, I did, but eventually it just had to come out, otherwise I would have exploded. And I can tell you, in that confined space with about 20 people in there, the effect, the effect was astounding. <laughs> it started with people, because Americans are very polite, right? It started with people just kind of twitching their nose and, and looking sideways at their neighbour. And then people started just discreetly coveting their nose. <laughs> By the time we got to the top, people were gagging. It was like a World War I gas attack, people fleeing for their lives. And, and when the doors opened, people, people fled from the elevator, staggering like casualties. And I just breezed out of the elevator <laughs> and sauntered onto the promenade deck, a man at peace with his world. <laughs> That was my frozen chip moment. That was the high point. In the obituary, write that moment down. But it's almost as soon as I got there, now we actually get to the illustration, and you'll see how completely irrelevant everything I just said was, but I'm so proud of it. Almost as soon as we got there, I saw this sign, and the sign said, do not spit off the Empire State Building. And you know, that at, until that moment, the thought had never occurred to me. It never occurred to me that f- faced with a view of the world's greatest city, from the city's tallest building, with all of its splendor laid before me, that I would have the thought of spitting off it. Until that moment, it had never occurred to me. I would have thought just enjoying the view was what you do there. But as soon as I saw that sign, I could think of nothing else. <laughs> I had to spit off the Empire State Building. I had to find out what's so amazing about spitting off the Empire State Building that they have to forbid it. And so my mouth began forming great gobbets of spit. It was like I had rabies or something. It was just, I was almost foaming at the mouth until finally I sauntered to a somewhat deserted part of the deck and I did the fateful I spat off the Empire State Building. And do you know, it was magnificent. (laughs) Just the feeling of pure rebellion. 
I had broken their rule. Of course, I hadn't counted on one thing that you may already have thought of. The thing about really tall buildings is that there is always an updraft of air. <laughs> and so as I looked over the edge to follow my spit, I became a victim of my own sin. <laughs> and it turned out it wasn't so much a rule as a public health announcement. It was... But you see, that's the nature of the law. As soon as you see a law, our sinful nature says, I want to break it. Because verse 8, our sinful nature seizes the opportunity that the law provides. The law provides the opportunity, my nature provides the rebelliousness, and the result is death. So verse 9, sin springs to life and I die, because death is the penalty for breaking God's law. And so do you see how sin, the law, and death are a formidable enemy? We're all slaves to all of them until Jesus. Because see, you see, Jesus' cross was his great victory over sin, the law, and death. Remember how Paul put it last night in Colossians 2. He said, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do you see what Jesus has done? He's forgiven us all our sins. And he's cancelled that written code of the law with its regulations that was against us. And he nailed it to the cross. In other words, Jesus has dealt with sin. He's dealt with the law. And he's dealt with death in one swift stroke. How? Well, by dying in our place, Jesus did two things. The first thing he did was he fulfilled the law. Because the law demands our death, doesn't it? We were guilty. We transgressed, we saw the sign, sin sprang to life and the Lord demanded our death. But Jesus died that death for us. He died in our place and so now the law is satisfied. It's not that the law is irrelevant, it's that the law has been accomplished. The law has been fulfilled. There's nothing left for the law to claim. And so now the law is silent. Its sting has actually been pulled because Jesus has paid its penalty. And not just for my past sins, but for every sin. You will never commit a sin that the law can condemn you for. Because Jesus has already been condemned for all of them in your place. And so the law is powerless. The law is essentially a bill that is marked paid. It's nailed to the cross. But sin is also finished. Because see what Paul says in verse 13. He says, when you were dead... In your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Paul's not talking about the penalty of sin in that verse. He's talking about the power of sin over you. See, I was more than a slave to sin's penalty. I was actually under sin's control. Paul calls me dead in the uncircumcision of my sinful nature. In other words, sin was actually my nature. 
it was a bent within me. I was addicted to it. I was a slave to it. But he says, Jesus has set us free from that on the cross. Look how Paul explains it a verse or two before. He says, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Paul uses here the image of circumcision, which is a fairly vivid image and it's a fairly brutal one. But he's saying, imagine your sinful nature has actually been cut off. Kind of like, well... You get the picture of what happens in circumcision. Imagine that has happened, but now it's your sinful nature that's been removed. In other words, if you're a Christian, your very nature has been changed. Your master has been changed. Who you are in your heart has actually been changed. And we're going to dig into this tomorrow night. But notice what this means. The law is defeated. Sin is defeated. Death is defeated. All while Jesus died on that cross. He reigned over them. And so the language Paul puts it there is, it's not Jesus up there hanging up there on the cross being crucified. No, it's sin and death and the law that are up on that cross. And Jesus is crucifying them. Jesus is mocking them. And Jesus is scorning them because he's victorious over them. And for an eternity, Jesus is going to be glorified as the defeater of death. Have a look in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. The end will come when he hands the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Do you see what heaven is going to be? Heaven is going to be the place where Jesus reigns over death. It's the moment when his victory is complete. You see, yes, Jesus was your penal substitute. Yes, he died for your sins. But he also died to reign. It's the cross for Christ's sake. Now, notice one of the enemies that we haven't dealt with yet is the enemy of Satan. The four enemies were sin, the Lord, death, and Satan. And on the cross, Satan is crushed too. Because look what Paul moves straight on to in Colossians. He says, Jesus cancelled the written code that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, Paul moves straight from sin, the law, and death to Satan, because on the cross, Satan was finally disarmed and destroyed. Because you see, what are Satan's greatest weapons against you? What can Satan use against human beings? Possession? Demonic attacks? We often think that, don't we? And it's kind of, there's a Hollywood kind of feel for it. We see movies about people being possessed and that kind of thing, and it scares us silly. But actually, Satan's weapons are much more ordinary than that. Satan's two great weapons are your sinfulness and God's law. He has two great weapons, one in each hand. In this hand, he has my sinfulness. And in the other hand, he has God's righteous law. You see it best in the passage that we read out, Revelation. Come with me to Revelation chapter 12. This is one of those great high points of the Bible. Revelation chapter 12. 
A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So John sees a a vision of a pregnant woman who's about to give birth. And standing in front of her is the dragon, Satan. And we know that the dragon is Satan because we're told that in verse 9. Look down in verse 9. He is that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So Satan is standing in front of this woman waiting to devour her child the moment he's born because you see this child is God's king. We know that because there's a quote from Psalm 2 there about holding the scepter. It's a quote from Psalm 2 about God's king. But as soon as God's king, this king child is born, he's snatched up to God and the woman is protected. Which leads to a great war in heaven. Look in verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he wasn't strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. You see, there's this great war and the climax of the war is that the dragon is thrown out of heaven because he's not strong enough and he's, he's flung down in defeat. Now, it's a wonderful vision, isn't it? It's really exciting as you watch it. But what on earth is it about? Because it's just so bizarre. Well, thankfully, John is told what it's about in verse 10. Have a look. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, what this vision is about is the coming of God's kingdom and his power and the coming of his Christ, his king. The word Christ means king, his king ruling. And he rules because Satan's been hurled down in verse 10. Except in verse 10, he's not called Satan. He's called by what the name Satan actually means. Did you know the name Satan means something we saw last night God's name and we saw what it meant Satan as a name also has a meaning it's the Hebrew word for accuser Satan is the accuser because you see that's what Satan does Satan's the ultimate double crosser firstly look in verse 9 he leads the whole world astray He tempts us and he lies to us, just like he tempted and lied to Adam and Eve. 
He says to us, look, sleeping together before you're married, that's not really a sin. I mean, you love each other, don't you? How can something that's so loving ever be thought of as a sin? I mean, why would God ever be angry with that? God would never judge you for doing something that's loving. And you're going to get married anyway. No one else really understands how much you love each other. You see, what Satan does is he leads us astray. He lies to us and he leads us into sin. But then as soon as we've done that, he double crosses us. Because then he turns around and he accuses us before God of the very sins that he just led us to commit. He's Satan, the accuser. Did you see what they just did, God? They were actually sexually immoral. They were naked together. They broke your laws, God. What does your word say? Your word says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, and they've done it, God, so you must condemn them. You see, Satan's the ultimate double-crosser. First, he lures us into sin, and then he accuses us before God. But what Revelation 12 says is, now he has been hurled down. He's been cast out of heaven. Because look in verse 11 again. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Satan's blood, uh, Jesus' blood has crushed Satan outright. Because Jesus was our sacrificial lamb. Jesus died in our place. His blood was poured out for us. Jesus has paid for every single sin that I'll ever commit. And so what can the accuser accuse me of? Nothing. He's silenced. He can point to my greed. He can point to my lust. He can accuse me of anger. But every single time, Jesus will say, my blood was shed for that. God's righteousness is satisfied. God's law is fulfilled. And so Satan is silenced and humiliated. Martin Luther, the great reformer, tells a wonderful story about a dream that he had when he was standing before the very throne of God and Satan is there and Satan is confronting Martin Luther with every single sin that he's ever committed and all of his lies and all of his foul language and his lust. And it's this great long scroll of damnation that Satan unrolls before God. And in the, in the dream, Luther says, all of this is true. But now right at the bottom of the scroll, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. And in the dream, Satan flees. And he's gone forever. And he's gone forever because Jesus has given us his spirit. John says in 1 John, He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who's born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, in my previous life, my sin proved that I belonged to Satan. But Jesus hasn't just removed Satan's accusation. He's also removed his power because he's given me his seed, which is John's way of talking about the Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit does his work, gradually my character is changed, slowly, slowly. Jesus is changing me so that I don't do the devil's work now. Now I do Jesus' work. And then in heaven, Jesus' victory will be complete. 
Revelation 20, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And the earth and the sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. You see, in heaven, Jesus' victory will be complete. Satan will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, and he'll be tormented forever. And then Jesus will judge the world from his throne, and every rebel who is still left in Satan's kingdom will be condemned. They'll join their master in the lake of fire. And so do you see what the cross was? All of that pain and all of that humiliation and all of that tears and the wrath and the misery that we saw on night one. Do you see what it was when you look beyond through those things? It was a glorious victory. Can you see the majesty beneath the grime? Can you see the grandeur of Jesus behind all of the shame? Because you see, the cross enthrones Jesus where he belongs. It's the cross for Christ's sake. And Jesus is magnificent there in Revelation 20, isn't he? He's frightening. He's a warrior. He's kind of scary, isn't he? Because who in their right mind would ever want to be Jesus' enemy? In fact, I wonder if that picture of Jesus in Revelation 20, who judges the entire world and casts his enemies into a lake of burning sulfur, I wonder if this is perhaps a Jesus that you're meeting for the very first time. You never realized that Jesus was this great and powerful. To you, he's always been your special friend. Sometimes I think that Christians can have a piglet view of Jesus. You know Piglet from Winnie the Pooh? In one of the books, it says, Piglet is so small, he slips into a pocket. Where it's very comfortable to feel him when you're not quite sure whether twice seven is 12 or 22. It's neither, by the way. (laughs) For the art students among us. (laughs) You see, Piglet's the comforter. When Christopher Robin is not quite sure... And loads of Christians think of Jesus like that. Jesus' job is to tell me that everything is going to be all right, that I am a nice person after all, that I will pass my exams, that I will find the right husband, that I am worthwhile and that someone really does love me. And it's not that any of those things are so very bad. Sometimes we actually need to hear those things and Jesus is so good that sometimes he tells us those things. But Jesus is far too big to fit in your pocket. He's far more than a comforter. Jesus is the Satan crusher. He's the destroyer of death. And on the last day, he will be the judge. And if we face him as enemies, we will be thrown by him into the lake of fire forever. Jesus is not to be trifled with. And he is not here for our comfort. We are here for his glory. We were created for him and we belong to him. Which is actually the next way that the cross is for Jesus' sake. 
the cross is the great moment when Jesus bought a people for himself. Have a look how Christians are described in these verses in the New Testament. And you are also among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Be shepherds of God's church, which he bought with his own blood. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another. He who was a free man, when he was called, is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do you see who you are if you're a Christian? You are Jesus' possession. And in fact, he bought you up on that cross. That's what Acts chapter 20 says, doesn't it? That Jesus bought us at the price of his own blood. It's an idea called redemption. So we were slaves to death and we were slaves to sin and we were slaves to judgment and we were slaves to Satan. But then Jesus bought us out of that slavery. He paid the ransom price for us, which was his blood. Now we've got to get something straight here. Jesus did not buy us from Satan. So some people think that when Jesus died on the cross, he was paying a penalty to Satan. And this is where I talked about the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe earlier. When you read the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, that's actually the impression you get, isn't it? Because what's the key turning point in the story? That the witch owns every traitor. And so the witch comes to Aslan and says, Edmund is mine. I owe him. And what is Aslan's death in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? It's a payment to the witch. But Jesus didn't pay Satan on the cross. He destroyed Satan on the cross. The one the payment was made to was God the Father. We stood under God's penalty. We were convicted under God's laws. And it was God who demanded our death as the price. But Jesus paid that price. In fact, when you think about it, God himself paid the price of our redemption because Jesus is God the Son. But what that means is that we now belong to Jesus. He bought us up there on that cross. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, we are Jesus' slaves. Do you see the great, the great irony of the cross? The great irony of the cross is that it looked like Jesus died alone and completely penniless. It looked like Jesus died as a bankrupt, destitute criminal. But really what happened was the king was buying for himself a kingdom of subjects. Jesus was buying for himself a people who would love him and glorify him and live for him forever. Have you ever realized that you are now in fact a slave? It's pretty confronting as an idea, isn't it? Because the world tells us that the ultimate thing that everyone ought to be is completely free. We should be free to do exactly what we want. We should be free to govern our lives and we should be free to follow our own hearts. If you're a Christian, you know that's utter nonsense. It's complete garbage. No one is free at any point in their existence. For one, we're not free because we're creatures. And as creatures, we owe our existence to our Creator. So no one is free, even from the point of view of creation. But on top of that, people who rebel against God aren't free, are they? No, they're slaves to sin, to death, to judgment, to Satan, to the law. And so why would I expect to be free now? No, being a Christian 
is just having the right master. Being a Christian is having the good master, the one who created me and who loves me and who actually knows what's best for me, the one whose yoke is light and in whose service is perfect freedom. Have you got that you're actually a slave? Have you got that you don't have the right to say what you're going to do with your life? That your life and your body and your future is not something that you own? Have you got that you don't have the right to choose your husband or your wife or your career? You don't have the right to choose where you're going to live. You don't have the right to choose what's best for you. Has that ever occurred to you? On the cross, Jesus bought the rights to all of those things. And so getting married is actually an exercise in figuring out what your master wants for you. Your job is to figure out who your master wants you to marry. Not by emptying your head and not by hoping that Jesus will pop a name inside it. No, by long, careful, faithful, prayerful Bible reading. Asking Jesus for wisdom about the sort of person he thinks you should marry. Asking Jesus to give you wisdom from his word about the sort of person who's going to help you to serve Jesus and help you to build Jesus' kingdom. Jesus, give me the wisdom to choose a wife that you think is best, not the one that I think is best. Jesus, make me attracted to the kind of person that you think is attractive, not the kind of person that I think is attractive. Give me the wife, Jesus, who loves you more than she will ever love me. Give me the wife who'll, who'll spread the gospel with me. Give me the wife who'll challenge my godliness. Give me the wife who'll encourage me to be more generous than I naturally am. Give me the wife who's going to encourage me to support mission. And if you choose not to give me a wife at all, Jesus, help me to praise you for that. Help me to trust you as my master. That's what it means to be a slave and choose a wife. Choosing a job is an exercise in figuring out how you're going to serve your master. Christians don't choose jobs based on money or status or job satisfaction. We choose the job that will give Jesus satisfaction. What job is going to help me to serve Jesus? What job is going to help me to obey Jesus and live for Jesus and spread his kingdom? What job won't swallow up my time and my energy and my money and my ambition? Because the fact is Jesus owns my time and energy, energy and money and my ambition. They are not mine to give to a job. What job is going to help me to love and serve and glorify and honor Jesus for the rest of my life? Pay and satisfaction if you're a Christian, don't come into it. What degree you do as a Christian doesn't come into it. Where does Jesus say you have to work in the degree you did? He doesn't. You work to serve Jesus. Do you see what it means to be a slave? Jesus has bought access to every single area of your life, not just access. Jesus has bought the rule of every single part of your life. And you think, well, that doesn't sound very loving of Jesus. Turns out he did all of this for himself. 
Well, remember, friends, God is not an idolater. And so God the Son isn't an idolater either. It would be wrong for Jesus to put you ahead of himself. Now, in fact, the best thing for us, the most loving thing for us is actually to live for Jesus. In heaven, the thing we're going to most love doing is praising Jesus. That's what we were created for. That's what we were saved for. This is the cross for Christ's sake. And so the cross is the moment where Jesus defeated his enemies, sin, death, the law, Satan. The cross is that moment where he bought for himself a kingdom of slaves to do his bidding and to rejoice in him, their master and saviour. But where we finish tonight is that the cross was all for Jesus' glory. God's glory was a big deal last night, wasn't it? Remember last night we saw that the entirety of the cross was about giving Jesus glory. Remember Moses? Moses asked to see God's glory. And so God said to Moses that he was going to pass in front of him and show him all of his goodness and tell him his name Yahweh. Remember that? And we saw those two great themes of God's name, Hesed and Emeth, or grace and truth. And then we saw last night how those two great themes came together on the cross. God was fully gracious on the cross as he forgave the world's sins. And God was fully just on the cross as he punished the world's sins on Jesus. In other words, God was fully himself on the cross. And so we saw last night that the cross was actually about God's glory. And yet, right through the Gospel of John, Jesus' glory is actually a really big deal too. So Jesus revealed his glory when he turned water into wine. And Jesus was glorified when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And then in John 17, Jesus prays that we will see his glory. You see, Jesus' glory is actually a really big deal in John. And in fact, Jesus' glory is mentioned more often in John than God's glory is. But the greatest moment of Jesus' glory in John is the moment that he dies. Jesus called the moment of his death the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. The cross was the hour of Jesus' glory. Now, how can that be? especially after night one. How can such a horrific, awful, humiliating, such a God-forsaken and sin-laden death ever actually be glorious? Keep that, that picture in your mind of Jesus in night one, completely, utterly, alone and forsaken. How can that be glorious? Well, because in that moment... That's when we see Jesus, grace and truth. See, right at the beginning of John 1, we're told who Jesus is. In John 1, Jesus is the Word who became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see those ideas all coming together? See what Jesus' glory is? It's just like his Father's glory. It's grace and it's truth. And in fact, the cross is the very pinnacle 
of Jesus' grace. It's the very pinnacle of his hesed. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater love than you can ever show than to sacrifice yourself for your friends. Except, Jesus didn't just lay down his life for his friends, did he? I mean, what sort of friend have I been to Jesus? What have I ever done for Jesus? When was I ever a faithful friend to Jesus? I haven't been Jesus' friend. I've been his enemy. And yet, how did Jesus feel about his enemies? How does the God of grace and compassion and mercy feel about his enemies? Well, in, John 13, uh, in Luke 13, Jesus looks over Jerusalem. This is the city that is just about to crucify him. It's the city of his enemies. It's the city of evil and darkness. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And then in John and Luke 19, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because that's how the God of Hesed treats his enemies. This is the compassionate and gracious God who's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, who forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. And so Jesus' cross, the moment of his death, was actually the pinnacle of his hesed. Because Jesus loved me when I had nothing for him but hatred. If I'd been there on that day, I would not have protected Jesus. I would not have sided with Jesus. If I'd been there on that day, I would have been in the crowd shouting abuse at Jesus. Had I been there, I would have been spitting on Jesus and I would have kicked him and I would have dragged him to his cross. But as Jesus dragged his cross along on that day, it was for love. As Jesus was spat upon, it was for love. As he was beaten and as he was abandoned and he was forsaken, it was all for love. It was love for us, for his enemies that nailed Jesus to that cross. And if I'd been there on that day, and if I'd stayed around long enough to listen, I would have heard the most extraordinary prayer. I would have heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, the cross is beyond glorious because there has never been a moment of hesed like that. In all of creation, there has never been a moment of grace and mercy like that. And in fact, in all of Jesus' existence, there had never been a moment of hesed like that. I mean, think about it. Jesus showed his love for us when he created us. But creation was not an act of mercy. That wasn't chesed. That was an act of generosity. And there was no sin in the garden. And even after sin, yes, Jesus showed mercy to Adam and Eve. And yes, Jesus showed mercy to Noah. And yes, he showed mercy to Israel. But that was a mercy of forgiveness. Not a mercy of self-sacrifice. But on the cross, Jesus fully expressed his mercy 
for the first moment really in all of creation, as he took all of God's limitless justice that ought to have been expressed at God's enemies and he wore it on his shoulders, in that moment Jesus was fully himself. In that moment Jesus was fully hesed. And in that moment, the universe saw Jesus' perfections. The angels and the demons and the planets and the very skies themselves saw the perfection of Jesus' character. They saw how good he was and how merciful he was and how compassionate he was. In that moment on the cross, all of creation saw the compassionate and gracious God who truly is slow to anger, who truly is filled with faithfulness, who truly does maintain love to thousands and forgive wickedness, rebellion and sin. At that moment on the cross, the universe saw Jesus being fully Yahweh. And it was glorious. Because nothing in the universe is more glorious than Jesus being truly God. The universe was made so that at that moment on the cross, Jesus could be himself. Jesus could act out his perfections. That is, the cross was not so that we could be fulfilled. The cross was so Jesus could be fulfilled. Because he's the God of Chesed. And he's also the God of Emeth. He's also the God of justice. As Jesus is moving towards his cross, he says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. In John 5, Jesus says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. You see, Jesus is God's true judge. And on that cross, Jesus judged. Before the cross, Jesus says, Now, now at the cross, the time has come for judgment on this world, and now the prince of this world will be driven out. So do you see, two amazing things were happening on the cross at exactly the same moment. One, on the cross, Jesus was being judged by God. God was judging Jesus for all the sin of the world. He was being sin-laden. He was being forsaken. All in that moment on the cross. But at the very same moment, Jesus was also judging the world. And Jesus was also driving out Satan. All at exactly the same time. I mean, we saw how he judges Satan. He took away his accusation and he stripped Satan of his people and his kingdom but Jesus also judged the world on the cross because our hatred and our love of darkness was exposed. Way back in John 3, Jesus said, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And the cross was the darkest moment of evil the world has ever seen. The cross was the darkest moment of human history because the cross showed just how much we hate light. The cross showed just how much humans hate truth and love evil. 
Because we took the one perfect human who had ever existed, we took the one truly beautiful and lovely and perfect human being who was the essence of perfection, we took the author of life itself and what did we do? We slaughtered him. We killed him. The cross was the lowest point in human history. And from that moment on, no one could ever say humans are good. No one could ever say humans are enlightened. No, all you have to do is look at the cross and you see the verdict on humanity. We are evil. And so even as Jesus was being judged, he was judging us. And friends, all of this makes the cross glorious. The cross is glorious because on the cross, Jesus showed that sin is sin. The cross shows the ugliness of the human heart. It holds up a mirror to all of our darkness that we would rather kill God than worship him. And this was God's plan. Do you see the glory of the cross? Jesus' hesed and his emeth both reach their absolute height in that moment. And that, that's far more important than anything that ever happened for us. Yes, we were saved. Yes, you were rescued. Yes, you were justified. But the greatest glory of the cross is that Jesus at last could be himself. For the first time in eternity... Hesed and Emeth came to their absolute perfection at the same time. What looked like disgrace was actually abounding glory. It was glory exceeding. It was glory to Jesus as God. And so as much as I love the cross for my salvation, and as much as I love Jesus for my salvation, at the cross I learned to adore Jesus just for who he is. At the cross, I see the clearest picture of exactly who Jesus is. And I learn to sit at the cross. And I learn to just soak in his perfection. Amid all of the mud and the death and the chaos, I learn to gaze up in dumbstruck adoration, for there is God himself in grace and truth. And yet again, just as with last night, there's actually something even more beautiful than all of this. There's something truly wonderful, something deeper about the heart of the cross. And that's what happened between the eternal father on the cross and his beloved son. Do you want to know the most extraordinary thing about the cross? The cross was actually the moment when God the Father loved Jesus most. See, right throughout John's Gospel, Jesus keeps saying that his Father loves him. In John chapter 3, he said, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. He knows his Father loves him. In John chapter 5, he said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. See, all the way through John, the Father loves the Son. And as mad as it sounds, as ridiculous and weird as it sounds, even on the cross, the father still loved his son. 
Even as God was pouring out all of his anger and all of his wrath and all of his outrage and all of his hatred at sin, the Father still loved Jesus. Because what does Jesus say in John 10? The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. You see, on the cross, Jesus knows, uh, the Father knows exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the obedient Son. Jesus is the one who is laying down his life at his Father's command. As the Father looks down on Jesus, he knows that he is doing exactly what he commanded him to do. He knows that the Son loves him, as we saw last night, and that the Son is being obedient to his commands. Of course God knows all of that. Otherwise, God would know less about what was happening on the cross than we would. And so even as God is punishing Jesus, he loves him as the obedient Son. Even as God hates Jesus, he loves him as the one who's doing his will. On the cross, God never lost sight of how truly beautiful Jesus is. That the cross is actually the intermingling moment of divine hatred against sin and divine love for the Son. And so even as the Father was abandoning and forsaking Jesus on the cross, He never actually did. In John 16, Jesus says to his disciples, you, you will all leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. How do we make sense of that? Jesus is fully forsaken by his Father on the cross. It's there in Psalm 22, but in some way he's not. In some way the Father's always with him. Which means that as Jesus was bleeding on that cross, his father was with him. As Jesus was breathing his last breath on the cross, his father was still with him. We saw it in the first night as well, that the Holy Spirit was with him as Jesus offered himself up to God. That is, Jesus died more alone than any human being has ever been. And yet, he also died in his father's love. When Jesus said, it is finished... Wasn't it his father he was speaking to? Wasn't he saying, Father, I've now finished the work that you sent me to do? See, the most amazing thing is that even as the father turned his back on Jesus, he was loving him and he was delighting in him and he was glorying him and he was actually welcoming him home. Because you see, Jesus did not go to hell on the cross. Jesus went home to his Father. Look how John describes Jesus' death in John 13 verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. And Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world and go to the Father. See, on the cross, Jesus went to his Father. John 13 verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. 
Somehow in that moment on the cross, Jesus actually went home to his father. He ascended to his father's side in heaven. That is, that's where Jesus was while his body was in the tomb. Sometimes Christians mistakenly think that when Jesus' body was in that tomb, Jesus was actually in hell, but he wasn't. His work was finished. John 13 verse 1, he'd gone home to his father. At that moment, the instant that the final price was paid, the very instant that he uttered those words, it is finished, Jesus went home. Because he'd finished his great task and he'd completed his labor and he had loved his father to the very end. And so he went home gloriously to his father's love, triumphantly and joyously. And the angels adored him and the heavens sang to him. And there the father welcomed home his son. And he loved him all the more because the son had been obedient to the very end. And the son basked in the father's love again. His body hung below, ravaged and ruined on the cross. But the sun was not there anymore. The sun was enthroned. The sun was adored. And the sun was cherished by his father again. This is so hard to comprehend, isn't it? How big is the cross? And yet at the same time, how beautiful is this? That even as God forsook and crucified and abandoned his own child, he never lost sight of who it was. He never lost sight of Jesus' beauty and goodness. And the Trinity was never broken because the Father and the Son never stopped loving each other, not even for a nanosecond. And so beyond all things, the cross is a unique moment in all of eternity, a moment of perfection, a moment of glory. When the Father was truly the Father, full of grace and truth, and the Son was truly the Son, full of grace and truth, and their glory was displayed to the universe. You see, this is the cross. And we get to gaze upon it. We get led into the very presence of it. It's the cross for Christ's sake. It's the cross for God's sake. It's the cross for Christ's love. It's the cross for Christ's inheritance. It's the cross with the adoration of a divine son embraced by his divine father. Don't you wish you could have been there? Don't you just wish you could have been there in that moment when the son went home to his father? What would you give to see that moment of homecoming? We'll see the completion of it when Jesus returns. We'll see that moment brought to its final most beautiful end when Jesus returns. You know, when you get this, it changes everything, doesn't it? This changes what you fall in love with. See, what do you love? What do you cherish? Deep down in your heart, what is the most precious thing of all to you? Have you ever come across anything so perfect and precious as the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Has your heart ever been captivated by anything so enthralling, so wonderful as Jesus Christ? See, earlier tonight, I said Jesus owns you because he bought your life. And he does. He did buy your life. That's true. But the thing is, on the cross, Jesus captures my heart. On the cross, he takes hold of my heart and he warms it and he wins it. And he captures my heart for him forever. That moment when I see what the son went through in love for his father, when I see that the father so loved the son, there, I just want to spend eternity loving my God. I want to spend eternity, I want to spend my whole life here on earth falling in love with my God. I want to spend my life diving deeper into his character. I want to understand this, this great mystery, better than I ever could. And I want to bask in his love for me, but I want to so know his love for himself that even his love for me becomes a lesser thing. I want to be captivated by the image of what happened there on the cross. What else is there to live for than to know this better, right? See, now that just for this moment, now that just for this moment you have a clear picture of reality and you can see what was happening at the very heart of the universe, now that for three days you have been gazing in upon the most sacred, the most beautiful event that's ever been, have you ever seen anything a millionth as lovely as Jesus? This is the moment to carry forward for the rest of your life. Love him. Give him your whole heart. Make the commitment that from this moment onwards, you'll carry in your mind the picture of the divine father and the divine son both loving each other and you have the chance to share in it. Make the commitment that whatever loving Jesus demands, you will do it. Whatever loving Jesus requires, you will give it. Whatever, wherever loving Jesus takes you, you'll go. Not because you're a slave, but because you have willingly had your heart captured. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We praise you, we praise you, we praise you. That on the cross, even as you poured out your wrath on Jesus, you knew who he was. The perfect, pure, obedient son. We praise you that even as you forsook him, you loved him. Even as you abandoned him, you welcomed him home. We praise you that at that moment when Jesus died, he went to you in heaven to be adored and to be welcomed home. And we thank you that even as Jesus took the penalty for every sin that was ever committed, he himself loved you in perfect obedience. And Father, we pray that this will lead us to fall out of love with ourselves.
Help us to see your magnificence and your grandeur. Please capture us with how worthy of love you are and how worthy of love Jesus is. Help us to see how nothing in this world is so worthy of our love as you. And Father, we pray that that love will lead to a lifetime of devotion. That whatever you ask, we will gladly give. Wherever you send us, we will gladly go. We praise you that for all eternity, we will get to gaze upon the Father who loves the Son and the Son who loves the Father. Amen.